At 9.02 a.m. on April 19, 1995, a set of explosives exploded at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The large sudden blast killed 168 people, including 19 children, and injured more than 680 people. While the initial building obviously had the most damage, demolishing nearly one-third of the building, the FBI reported 324 other buildings that were damaged, some even destroyed, as well as burning 86 cars. The attack estimated about $652 million in damage and was, and still is considered, the largest domestic terrorist attack in the United States of America. And welcome to another episode of Dr. Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by me, Justice, a doctor of forensic psychology, and me, Rebecca, a criminologist. You won't find clickbait titles, selfie thumbnails, or spooky music to set the mood here. But what you will find is ethical true crime with extra focus on empathy, accuracy, and a viewpoint from professionals. So grab your coffee and let's get started. For today's topic, we are discussing domestic terrorism which can be a very triggering topic. Please proceed with caution. Rebecca and I would also like to mention that as we discuss domestic terrorism, politics must be discussed. We here at Dr. Crime are not here to discuss our politics and our views are not conveyed in this episode. I also want to caution we may bring up recent events that our listeners may find sensitive, such as school shootings, the Las Vegas shooting, abortion clinic violence, and more. While these topics may not be discussed in depth, we realize that these are such recent events that can be extremely triggering. We urge you to listen listen with caution. Timothy McVeigh was born in 1968 in Lockport, New York. His childhood involved absent parents and being bullied quite a bit. When he graduated high school, he took a couple college courses before deciding to join the military. Part of wanting to join the military stemmed from his love of guns and explosives. He also had been heavily influenced over the book called The Turner Diaries, which was a book about neo-Nazism and a terrorist attack against the U.S. government using a box truck full of explosives. During his tenure in the United States Army as an infantryman, he received several service awards, including the Bronze Star Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, and the Kuwait Liberation Medal. Even though he was well-decorated and honorably discharged, he did have a reputation. After he was promoted to sergeant, he was known for assigning undesirable duties to lower-ranking soldiers who were uh, BIPOC. McVeigh also had called these men numerous racial slurs and was often displaying racist behavior. He actually got reprimanded because he went to a KKK rally wearing a white power t-shirt. At the rally, it was discussed how some soldiers could wear black power t-shirts and felt that they needed to assert dominance. I would also like to note here that in an interview with McVeigh, he stated, quote, I hit an Iraqi tank more than 500 yards away on my first day in the war, and then the Iraqis surrendered. I also decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire from 1,100 yards away. I was shocked to see the carnage on the road while leaving Kuwait after U.S. troops routed the Iraqi army. End quote. Oh, so in case anyone is curious, um, I did want to point out a couple things. So firstly, if you're in the military, um, obviously you know this, but you are actually allowed to attend like protests and stuff like that. So it's not, he didn't get in trouble for going to those events. It was the fact that it was what he was wearing. Um, 
Yeah, and the white power. You you cannot go to KKK rallies. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Anyways, um, I looked it up in McVeigh's particular job in the infantry was he was a gunner on bradley fighting vehicles which interestingly is the same exact job my dad had in the infantry not too long afterwards um another thing to note is that mcveigh really wanted to be a part of the special forces community but he wasn't able to complete the selection course and this is actually why he ended up getting out in 1991 after three years of service now we know that he was showing some um, clearly concerning signs. Um, you said he was a loner as a child. Did he make friends in the military? Uh, during his tenure at the military, he did meet quite a few friends. Um, and I say quite a few, he met two, um, which was arguably the first time in his life where he had a real companionship. There was a childhood friend um, that we do bring up later. So this was like the first time that he had really like kind of had more than one friend. Um, now, this is Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, and they had befriended McVeigh as they all had quite a bit in common. They remained friends even after McVeigh left the military, and they would continue to keep in contact. In fact, McVeigh even lived with Fortier for a while in Arizona, particularly because McVeigh drew a map of where nuclear attacks could happen and found that Arizona would be a safe state to live in. McVeigh was the best man in Fortier's wedding, and they had a strong friendship. That is until Fortier started doing heavy drugs, and McVeigh was not interested. McVeigh had smoked marijuana and experimented with methamphetamines, but he was not interested in doing it again and was not interested in the heavier stuff, so that kind of drew a wedge between the two of them. After that falling out, McVeigh went to Michigan Farms to live with Nichols. Now, this is April of 1993. The duo had turned on television and was watching the siege in Waco, Texas. Uh, the guys had been watching, and Nichols' brother and Nichols were experimenting with making homemade bombs while watching this. Um, and they even showed Timothy some tips and tricks on how to make a homemade bomb. So they were doing this while watching a government siege. Ah, yes, the Waco, Texas event. Mm-hmm. Um Just to give a quick rundown of what happened, essentially in February of 1993, the ATF, or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, went to deliver a search warrant to a Branch Davidian, and the, this was a religious compound. The ATF, we'll have to talk about the Branch Davidians another time. Um, The ATF showed up for a search warrant as there was suspicion of illegal weapons on the premise, But as they arrived, there was a massive shootout, which resulted in the death of four agents and six Davidians. Um, The siege part comes in because for 51 days, the FBI, the ATF, state and local military and police were stationed outside of the compound. This is what makes it a siege. Um, Finally, after 51 days, the FBI launched tear gas into the compound to get people to come outside. But horrifically, the compound caught fire, and the resulting fire ended up killing 76 people, including 25 children, two pregnant women, and David Koresh himself, who was the head of the compound and the head of the Branch Davidians. Yeah, that's that entire situation could be a whole other episode for what happened. Um, <laughs> so as you can tell, as someone who's kind of conspiracy theory-ish, this was... This was a big event. The, the Waco, Texas event was a big thing to a lot of people, um, especially people that didn't really trust the government. 
Mm-hmm. So the guys, particularly me, particularly McVeigh, were infuriated at the siege. He was especially angry that they used tear gas against women and children. He believed that this was a cover-up and that he had been vocal that this was a, gov- a government cover-up. McVeigh was also extremely angry because there was the Ruby Ridge standoff, which was an 11-day standoff in Idaho that resulted in the death of the wife and child of Randy Weaver, which was the person the ATF and FBI were pursuing. Now, this siege was in August of 1992, um, but it was still very upsetting and always weighed in the back of his mind. So then having the Waco happen in 1993, um, it, it, he was just that, like, set him off. I feel like someone building homemade bombs while actively being angry at the United States government doesn't really result in great things. Yeah, you know, I feel like I feel like that's not a good combination either. No. After the siege was over, McVeigh really honed in on his anti-government rhetoric. He would make pamphlets with the title U.S. Government Initiates Open Warfare Against American People and Waco Shootout Evokes Memory of Warsaw 43 which um, is a battle that happened in World War II. He would make videos about anti-government propaganda and would even change his answering machine every couple weeks to quotes like, give me liberty or give me death. Now, in 1994, there were new firearm restrictions, and this really set off McVeigh. He felt that all of his rights were being infringed upon, and he cut ties with the only person from his childhood um, writing a letter that said, those who betray or subvert the Constitution are guilty of sedition and or treason and are domestic enemies and should and will be punished accordingly. It also stands to reason that anyone who sympathizes with the enemy or gives aid or comfort to said enemy is likewise guilty. I have sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and I will. And I will because not only did I swear to, but I believe in what it stands for every bit of my heart, soul, and being. I know in my heart that I am right in my struggle, Steve. I have come to peace with myself, my God, and my cause. Blood will flow in the streets, Steve. Good versus evil. Free men versus socialist wannabe slaves. Pray it is not your blood, my friend. End quote. Jesus. He was also at this time going to popular places in America that were the center of political conspiracies, like Area 51, uh, Gulfport, Mississippi, because there was rumors of like UN operations running out of there, which that was not true. Um, he was trying to scope out cities that looked like there could be Russian spies. So he was traveling all over to determine what was real and what wasn't. Well, um, that is a bunch of red flags if I've ever seen any. I would be very interested in seeing a psychological assessment of McVeigh done around that time period. Um, But what, what rumors, what did they think the government was doing? So Nichols and McVeigh heard rumors that the government was going to be putting more restrictions on firearms, ammo, and supplies that they could use to create bombs. So they started to stockpile these supplies and Nichols and McVeigh even robbed a friend um, that owned a gun store to make sure that they had enough stock. So they were very concerned about these rumors that there was going to be uh, more restrictions placed on these items. So the angry McVeigh was starting to plan an attack against the United States government. He had told Fortier about his plans 
um, after not talking for a while and asked him for help in which Fortier declined and even told his wife how ridiculous it was. McVeigh wrote two letters to the ATF. The first letter was titled Constitutional Defenders and the second was titled ATF Read. He denounced government officials as fascist tyrants and stormtroopers and he warned ATF all you tyrannical motherfuckers will swing in the wind one day for your treasonous acts against the Constitution of the United States. Remember the Nuremberg War Trials. End quote. What? <laughs> Not only was McVeigh writing letters to the ETF and trying to recruit helpers, he even wrote a letter to his sister that something big was going to happen in the month of the bull, which is an astrological reference to April, May, as that is Taurus season and Taurus is represented by the bull. He also wrote a letter to a customer of his that he would sell guns to named Stephen Colbert, and he wrote, A man with nothing left to lose is a very dangerous man, and his energy slash anger can be focused toward a common slash righteous goal. What I'm asking you to do, then, is sit back to be honest with yourself. Do you have kids slash wife? Would you back out at least a minute to care for the family? Are you interested in keeping your firearms for their current slash future monetary value? And would you drag that 06 through rock, swamp, and cactus to get off the needed shot? In short, I'm not looking for talkers. I'm looking for fighters. And if you are a fed, think twice. Think twice about the constitution you are supposedly enforcing. Isn't enforcing freedom an oxymoron? And think twice about catching us with our own guard. You will lose just like Dagan did, and your family will lose. End quote. I also want to report here that he was also at this time threatening to assassinate multiple members of the U.S. federal government, including attorney generals involved in the Waco and Ruby Ridge siege. McVeigh really seems to be writing letters to a whole lot of people out here who are not really doing a whole lot about it. Um, he is clearly laying out a plan or i mean if nothing else like he's telling people his intentions oh yeah he's he's flat out telling people what he wants to do and what he believes in and i think like we've talked about before that when people make threats like that i think people tend to not believe that people would do things like that um, yeah and that like sways how you listen to things you know so mcveigh did recruit Nichols, and they were planning the attack. McVeigh had already determined which building he wanted to attack and started devising a plan. Nichols was the only one who had agreed to help him. So they rented a rider truck and planted a bomb that had about 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and nitromethane, which is a lot of, a lot of yeah. like, bomb material. A couple days before the attack, the duo had planted a getaway car near the building so that they could light the ignition that was timed, and then they would have time to get away from the scene before the bomb would explode. On the morning of April 19, 1995, at 9.02 a.m., a bomb had detonated at the Mora building. The blast was felt all around the city, nearly flattening a third of the building and damaging hundreds of buildings and cars. The death toll climbed to 162, including children, as there was a daycare on the second floor. Over 600 people were injured, and our nation was changed forever. Before the bomb went off, Nichols and McVeigh were on their way out of the city. 
Nichols did make it home to Kansas, but McVeigh was pulled over for a bad license plate and was illegally carrying a gun. McVeigh was placed in a holding cell until officers could gather more information. At the same time of his arrest, investigators were already piecing together the terrible tragedy. They had information on John Doe 1, as they believed that it was a group. At first, they believed it was a Muslim terrorist group, but quickly realized that this was not correct. Once they started gathering information, they found that McVeigh was related to the attack and started asking him questions while he was being held. According to the FBI website, agents found traces of chemicals used in explosion on McVeigh's clothes and a business card on which McVeigh had suspiciously scribed, quote, TNT at $5 stick need more, end quote. They learned about McVeigh's extremist ideologies and his anger over the events at Waco two years earlier exactly. They discovered that a friend of McVeigh's named Terry Nichols helped build the bomb, and there was another man, Michael Fortier, who was aware of the bomb plot. Now, even though this seemed open and shut, uh, the FBI had a massive investigation and was considered one of the largest investigations to date. This investigation included 28,000 interviews, 43,000 investigative leads, three tons of evidence, they searched more than 13.2 million hotel registration records, reviewed more than 3.1 million truck rental records, and searched more than 682,000 airline reservation records. Yeah, it was a huge undertaking. Um, the indictment against the men had 11 counts. The first three counts were conspiring to use a weapon of mass destruction to kill people and destroy federal property, using a truck bomb to kill people, and malicious destruction of federal property resulting in death. The last eight indictments were for violating a federal statute that punishes for the killing of federal law enforcement officials. Um, so there were eight law enforcement officials, federal law enforcement officials that died in the building. The indictment did also list all of the individuals who died inside the Murrah building that day. There was, interestingly, also an indictment against Michael Fortier for having knowledge of the bombing plan and concealing that from law enforcement and several weapons violations. Um, I'm not sure that we talk about him again, but um, in case we don't, he was found guilty and sentenced to 12 years in prison just for knowing about it. Yeah. So McVeigh was found guilty on all charges, as, um, and he was ordered the death penalty. Nichols had a trial a couple months later with a near-identical witness list, defense strategy, and evidence. However, the jury was missing a key element, which is a strong hatred for the government, and far less physical evidence, because remember, they found the physical evidence on McVeigh because he was in the holding cell, um, and they didn't get to... Nichols until later because Nichols actually basically turned himself in. He saw on the news that he was wanted and he turned himself in for questioning and there he was arrested um, after interrogation. The jury declared Nichols guilty on one count of conspiracy um, but instead of murder charges he was found guilty on eight charges of involuntary manslaughter and he was spared the death penalty and instead sentenced to live in prison without parole. Live life in prison without parole. 
Nichols tried to have a series of appeals. He tried to block state charges because there's a difference between federal charges and state charges. Um, and that included the 161 counts of murder that took place in 2004. And again, he was convicted of all charges, but not given death penalty due to another jury that was not unanimous. He is, uh, he is serving 161 consecutive life sentences and no possibility of parole. So we haven't talked about domestic terrorism or really terrorism at all. Um, did McVeigh and Nichols fit the profile or what even is the profile? Or honestly, let's just talk about why was this labeled domestic terrorism and not just a terrorist attack or like a mass murder? Yeah, so essentially, a terrorist attack is a violent and or criminal attack against the United States in alignment with a political or religious organization. Now, an international attack is based off of that country's terrorist groups, um, whereas a domestic terrorist is one who commits an attack against their own homeland to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as political, religious, social, racial, or even environmental nature. So essentially, a terrorist attack is a politically motivated crime against the country. If the perpetrator is from that homeland, so like an American creating an attack on American soil, it's considered domestic terrorism. If the attack is from a foreign country, so like 9-11, um, and perpetuated by a terrorist group, then it would be international terrorism. Yes, exactly. And and it doesn't, if, if it's in international terrorist group even if they're not you know targeting a like federal building um, even if they just do it on American soil that's still considered a, a terrorist attack so we see a lot especially after mass shootings um, that it's labeled as domestic terrorism and people are like calling it a terrorist attack but there is a lot more that goes into declaring a terrorist attack, particularly a domestic terrorist attack. The actions have to be political or religious in nature. That's why the Las Vegas shooting at the country festival was not officially listed as domestic terrorist attack. They tried to investigate it as such, but because we didn't know the motive and it was not done on technical, like against a federal building um, or a federal employee, they couldn't automatically deem it as a domestic terrorist attack. So when it comes to domestic terrorism, is there a specific way the crime is committed? I mean, there are so many different ways terrorist attacks can happen, and it can be something like a bombing, a shooting, a rogue car driving into a farmer's market. It can be a cyber attack where they shut down public transportation or hack computers for information. It can be biological warfare. I mean, the anthrax back right after 9-11. Um, there are so many different ways, both international and domestic, um, that it can occur. And there's not too much information about the method of crime to indicate the psychology like many other crimes have. So, okay, speaking of psychology, what is the psychology behind terrorism? That's tough to answer because I can't speak on international terrorism. There are so many different answers, but to put it plainly, for an international terrorist, they are a part of a group and they follow their ide ideology and believe that what they are doing is best for their agenda. As for domestic terrorism, there's a bit of information and it's a little bit different than international. So for starters, 
There are three typologies. There's the crusaders. Those are the ideologically driven. They are in it for the cause type of person. Then we have the criminal, which they're violent individuals who are just looking for an excuse to hurt people, and they're impulsive. They're less ideological thinking, but they still want to produce harm. So they'll just go along with it. Like, they may not believe in the message, but they're like, hey, I still get to do what I want to do. So if this is how I have to do it, then so be it. Um, and I do just want to preface this before I say the next phrase i do want to say i do not agree with this wording of this phrase however it is listed in official records and official research so i do have to use this phrase um so please again this is not something a word i like but i do have to use it um the next like type of typology is the crazies quote unquote which again i hate that word um but these are the people that have severe mental illness as well as loyalty to a subgroup, whether it's religious or political. Normally, they're seen as an absolute needed part. They're like the hype person of the group or they're a dangerous asset because they're like so excited that they're willing to like do anything and be anybody. These are like your extremists. You're going to have more of these people in like a terror, like in a group setting than like an individual setting. Um, so then there's also the classification system when it comes down to terrorism, and that is a group dynamic. Most terrorist attacks are done by a group of people. Not always, they can sometimes be individual, but you're normally gonna have two or more people. Um, now there's the leader who exhibits an eccentric slant on reality, and that extends to paranoia. They see the world through conspiracies and a web of plots, particularly to inferior cultures or religious groups who are poisoning the self-defined chosen group. There is a lot of confidence and presence, which is how they emerge to the leader. They're someone who's well-spoken, they're confident, people really look up to them. Uh, then we have the activist operator. They are normally your antisocial um, personality, the psychopathic personality structures. They have a varied criminal history. This is more the muscle than the brain of the group. Um, they may not be someone who's fully aligned with the ideas of the leader, but again, they want an excuse to carry out the violence and come along for the ride. So you have like the leader, which is the brains. You have the activist, the operator, that's like the muscle. And then you have the idealist and they just want a better world and believe that their ideology is how we achieve it. They are seeking truth and guidance, which is how they become kind of a follower. They are the mass amount of people who encourage the leader and kind of like a hype man and believe that it's them against the world. So far, I, I know we have more to talk about, but where do McVeigh and Nichols kind of fall into that? So you have McVeigh, who's very strong-minded. He has the thought process and the charisma of the leader, and he's really fitting into that profile of, like, that main person in a terrorist group. Um, and then you have Nichols, who seems more of, like, the idealist member than an activist member. So he wasn't necessarily the muscle of the operation. He was more of like a hype man. He was more of like, no, I agree. Like the government, you know, the government messed up at Waco. They messed up at Ruby Ridge. Like everything's a conspiracy. He wasn't really doing it because he wanted to put out violence or because he wanted to hurt other people. He was more or less just like, I don't agree with what the government is doing. 
Again, I just want to reiterate that terrorism, both domestic and international, is a case-by-case basis. There is no formula for creating a terrorist. However, there are stages that can identify the terrorist mindset. And that is stage one, that they are seeing that something is not right. Um, They don't agree with things. They're starting to notice a pattern of things that they don't agree with. This can be political oppression, erosion of moral values, even something like poverty. They're seeing something in the difference of the world that they don't agree with. And then they go into the it's not fair stage. And that is the basis of comparison. This is where the resentment starts to grow because someone else has it better than them or another group is creating injustice and the individual or group wants what's best for the mass public. So in their mind, again, we're not saying that it's right, but in their mind, they're thinking my ideology is going to save everybody. Therefore, I need to save everybody. Then we have stage three and that's the it's your fault stage. This is where the individual or group starts blaming the marginalized group. It's their fault for the bad morale. It's their fault that there's chaos in the world. There is this mentality that they are the victim of a corrupt system and they are blaming the oppressor. For example, it's the ex-political party's fault that we don't have a good economy and it's their fault for all of our problems. It's definitely that victim mentality. Then lastly, we have stage four. And the final stage is that that's the you're evil. And this is where everything goes from everything is your fault to you're a terrible person because this is your fault. This is where the hatred really starts to gain traction. This is where they're really enveloped that this other person caused them harm by having different ideas. Okay, so what about a profile? Is there a profile for a domestic terrorist? There is. Before the next statement, I want to reiterate that this podcast is not about our personal politics. We have not inserted any of our beliefs and are going strictly off of the research from the White House, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, scholarly articles, and reputable sources. For an individual, they are more of a loner type. They are unable to keep steady work. They have non-analytic thinking, oversimplifying of complex issues, They have absolute thinking, so they're very black and white. Um, They have a utopian set of beliefs, which is that their beliefs are going to save the world from doom. They have non-consideration for opposing viewpoints. Um, They have immortality power, so they believe that they're a part of something greater than self. So if they die, that it's for the greater good. They're they're not really afraid of death, Um, but they do believe in, like, a higher self. They have feelings of disillusion, fear, frustration, disgust, and hatred towards other faiths or ideologies, feeling of competence and power, so they feel very powerful, they feel like it's up to them to save the world, Um, feeling like they belong to a supportive group with like-minded people. There's also the financial pressures. Um, They also have poor employment history, and there is also financial pressures, poor employment history, or like they're unwilling to take on necessary work. Um, They'll have huge problems at home. They'll have family and home stress, including stress between parent and child. Um, Sometimes it can be the fact that they don't have children, they want some, or they don't want children and they have children that they have to raise. Um, 
there's also a military or law enforcement history or the desire to work for them. Now, in the research, I was finding that it's more likely people that want to work for them as opposed to actually being able to um, because it's the inability to work for the military or law enforcement that like really sets them off. They also have addiction and or a history of petty crime and also the failure to adjust to modern uh, adjust to modernality. There are also personality traits of authoritarianism, envy, dependency, omnipotence, entitlement. They have emotional detachment, inferiority complex, disempowerment, low self-esteem, and personality disorders ranging from antisocial personality disorder to borderline, uh, dependent, narcissistic, paranoid. They also have role confusion and overall um, very common to have an altered sense of state. The, their behavior before an attack can also be quite telling. Um, they will almost seem manic. They will tell people they're going to recruit people. They're going to like let people know what their plan is because they want to tell people like, hey, do you want to help? And also don't be here because we're going to try and save the world by bombing somewhere. They will be surveying the area multiple times beforehand, trying to figure out who is where and at what time. Um, what is the traffic pattern like? What are the response time? There have been a few studies that have noted before a terrorist attack that there have been phony 911 calls beforehand. And this is determined so that the perpetrator can look at response times and the response routes, like where are the nearest stations, which stations respond, which route do they get, et cetera, et cetera. There's also the recruitment phrase, and this is where the perp is open about their plans. And again, they're trying to recruit people. They're not hiding what their plans are. They really, really aren't. So this is where like you see something, say something. Like if someone's telling you that they're going to, you know, do something like this, they they might. There's nothing wrong with like seeing something and saying something. Uh, so that's kind of like the, the generic profile for an individual, but you will find many individuals in one group, whether it's religious or political. And in the United States, again, this is directly from the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security, that extreme right-wing conservatives are the most likely to commit acts of terrorism and has that specific genre of population have had an exorbitant amount higher than any other group in America um, portraying violence on American soil. The Center for Strategic and International Studies conducted a study in which revealed that since 2015, right-wing extremists have been involved in 267 plots or attacks and 91 fatalities. The data shows at the same time, Attacks and plots ascribed to the far left views accounted for 66 incidents leading to 19 deaths. So we're not saying that, you know, the left are these wonderful, like, they would never, they still commit attacks as well, um, but 66 compared to 267. Of course, there are other terrorist groups that are politically motivated without being political extremists. That includes the Animal Liberation Front, the Army of God, uh, the KKK, and even more um, that will attack just because of one specific agenda or ideation. 
Wasn't abortion clinic violence only recently considered domestic terrorism? Correct. In the eighteen in the eighties and the nineties, it is considered uh, limited political, uh, which was really not investigated as terrorism. In 1994, there were laws passed to protect protect abortion facilities, which then made it a crime uh, committed against an abortion clinic or worker would be investigated as an act of terror. And of course, this episode, we only talk about domestic terrorism. So there are many, many types and profiles left out. Terrorism is a scary topic in general, and that's why it's so important to understand the facts and be on alert. And if you see something, say something. Because before terrorist attacks... They will tell people. They will show people. They are going to brag about what they're about to do. So even if you don't think the person's capable of it, you still need, if you see something, you need to say something. The FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and the White House have all released memos on an increasing number of domestic terrorist attacks since 2020 and fear it is only getting higher. If you see something, say something. Most terrorist attacks can be prevented. For more information, please visit the FBI or DHS website for more information. And that is going to conclude today's episode of Dr. Crime. Please check us out on Instagram at Dr. Crime Pod to see the sources for today's episode and to support the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next week.